Before me, you are a slug in the sun. You are privy to a great becoming and you recognize nothing. You are an ant in the afterbirth. Is your nature to do one thing correctly? Tremble. But fear is not what you owe me. No lounge. You and the others. You owe me all. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Film 89 podcast. I am your host, John Arminio. And as you may have noticed, uh, this might be the first time the gentle Welsh brogue is not introducing you to a uh, Film 89 episode. So I must apologize up top for my yank braying. But these are strange times, uh, even in the podcasting space. But luckily, with me are two gentlemen from the land of uh, Rembrandt and sensible drug policy. Uh, we have Bill Scurry and uh, Matthias Vanderroost. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good to see you, man. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite thrillers, favorite serial killer movies, favorite madman movies, Michael Mann's Manhunter. I would just like to ask my uh, co-hosts uh, how they first came across this film, what their opinions, overall opinions on it are. So, uh, Matthias, why don't you take it away? I'm not sure how I came to watch this movie. I think it was probably because it's a Hannibal movie. I think that's how it happened uh, when I watched all the one, well... All the Hannibal movies, even uh, Hannibal Rising, which is really, uh, that's the one that everybody says is really terrible, but to be honest with you, it's okay. But that, I think that's when uh, I watched Manhunter, and uh, to this day, it's one of my favorite Michael Mann movies. It's one of those movies that I rewatch probably once every year and a half, uh, right along uh, with uh, Heat and Collateral, and uh, even Black Hat, which, again, people say is not a good movie, but... I like it a lot. I really like uh, Manhunter, so I'm looking forward to uh, talking about it. Bill? Well, uh, when Silence of the Lambs came out in 1990, right? 91? 90. 91. 91. I remember in high school, because that's how old I am. I was 16 that year. People were talking about how Manhunter had been out there already and it had featured Hannibal Lecter. And some people were being contrarian even then saying, oh, Manhunter was better. Uh, I saw Silence of the Lambs in the theater that year, but it didn't strike me as being the modern masterpiece that I take it as now because, you know, time has set in and I watched it a number, you know, number of years later and its its influence is, is felt more deeply. But I, I didn't actually see Manhunter regardless of how, how much people trumpeted it, probably until about maybe eight or nine years ago. And it's it was remiss in not seeing it because I love man. I love Tommy Noonan. I'm a huge Tom Noonan fan. And I, you know, I just didn't realize that he was one of the centerpieces of that movie, him and Bill Peterson. So I, I, I think I was late on the uptake. Uh, it, for whatever reason, it's, it's almost um, unforgivable just because all those ingredients were there. But since I have seen it for the first time, I'm like, I'm like Matt now, where I go back and I revisit it a bunch of times. In fact, as soon as I got to Amsterdam last year, one of the first things that me and him did is we saw a, um, like a roadshow. They were having a Michael Mann retrospective here in Amsterdam. And he took the train and we got to see Manhunter together. It was like one of our first movies we saw. So I was really glad about that. And I've watched it a few times since then. And I mean, it's a classic and it certainly sticks out as, you know, one of the better Hannibal Lecter movies for certain, even if it doesn't have Tony Hopkins in it. You know, it, it, it stands out as also as an incredible man achievement where it comes in his career. And I'm sure we'll get to talking about that, too. One of the reasons why I love man's films, especially of this era, is that they're not 
timeless. Like they're very uh, of the time they were created. So you know, Manhunter is was made in '86, and this movie, you know, from the clothes to the sets to the music, it's very 1986, and that's part of what I I love about it, and that's what helps it live alongside Silence of the Lambs rather than in opposition to it because there's such different interpretations of the material, of Thomas Harris's work, of Lecter as a character. You know, the, the music is so... It's an evolution of uh, man's work with Tangerine Dream from The Keep and Thief, and so I think that's also interesting. And it just makes me more fascinated with man as a filmmaker because he was... It took a long time for there to be like a characteristically Michael Mann film, I think, because if you compare this movie to The Keep, which is a real wackadoo cult horror movie, they couldn't be more different. And so it's just so interesting to look at Manhunter in the context of, of his work. Well, Bill went to see uh, The Keep at that retrospective, actually. I, that That is one of those movies that I know they ran out of money at some point, but there is something to it. It's a weird, uh, sort of like a supernatural horror movie but i i actually like it it's one of my favorites um i'm i may be um kind of a a patron saint of lost causes here but yeah i mean i've loved that damn thing since i was a kid when i saw it on hbo playing back in the 80s when i wasn't quite it's hard to figure out what you're looking at because it's got so many strange influences you know it's it's a gothic it's it's a michael mann it's a european it's a war movie and you know then it's got this weird creature effect in the middle of it which is what is going to make a nine-year-old excited is seeing a giant latex monster molasar or something yeah molasar exactly and then of course the actors who at that point i mean jürgen now is probably the biggest actor in the cast you know gabriel byrne hadn't really broken out yet he was still right. making smaller movies and scott glenn was just a character guy i think he just he'd gonna do the right stuff a year or so after that for for uh, philip kaufman yeah in a way and ian mckellen was in it too just a strange mix of people but yeah it's not it's the least michael mann movie of all the michael mann movies and yet right. it's one of the ones i like the most and that's that synthy effect you're right john which is present in this movie manhunter has a very synthy soundtrack that's not dissimilar to tangerine dream stuff and and that that's what gets me buzzed in that on that, on that 80s tip for sure that's one of the things yeah. i like most about this as well i listen to the soundtrack pretty regularly actually i know that a lot of people feel like oh that's why it's dated but i actually kind of like that I like watching movies like that where it is very of a very specific time. It's like watching a time capsule. Yeah, Matt, I remember the one thing that you pointed out to me, because I hadn't seen it for maybe five years since before we saw it uh, in the theater. It was the... um, the song during the during the sex scene with with uh, Dollar Hyde. Oh right, yeah. It's, it's got vocals and lyrics, and it just sounds very much like a nineteen eighty six soft rock weird Los Angeles that's like right, uh, you know, smoky kind of cocaine ballad or something like that. <laughs> it's such a it's such a weird choice in the movie to put the one song with vocals over this strangely bulky serial killer sex scene where he can't right. he can't quite wrap his hands around joan allen because because <laughs> of whatever but it's like uh, that that it's weird and it's a it's a disjointed thing that might be the only strange misstep but i i love that it's there i mean christ it's so enjoyable now we did watch uh i don't know about you john but i know that bill and i watched the uh director's cut over the last few days there weren't that many things that were different about it i have to say yes yeah there were a couple yeah like uh scenes that were lengthened a bit uh, like uh, some of the fbi briefing stuff there was definitely more detail there there's like a brief conversation between uh will graham and jack crawford about getting mrs graham sort of a conjugal visit 
right uh with with will and then there's like one brief um exchange between uh will and some like hick realtor when will is investigating that the house is, yeah that is actually an actor from miami vice he played uh Switek. i forget what his name is but he was one of the main cast members <laughs> wow nice pull there man good one yeah. wow <laughs> i loved i love director's cuts because I just assume that there's just something else going on. Sometimes it gives somebody a chance to redo a film. In this case, since the, I mean, the version I had, it was clear which of the footage was part of the director's cut because it was sort of crappy. It almost looked like a VHS yes. transfer. Probably the only reason, I mean, the only version of it that exists with that obvious visual uh, difference. So you could tell which parts were there and which ones weren't. I mean, it does not affect the story. And in fact, it just slackens it slightly. So it's not like I wouldn't watch the director's cut again, but I do think the theatrical cut is superior. I think there is one advantage to the director's cut in that I think there is one exchange between uh, Will Graham and his wife where it's more clear that he's hiding how much he is involved in the investigation to the Tooth Fairy killings. And so it it gets to the character of Will being absorbed into the the psychology of a serial killer. He's being pushed further and further down the garden path into psychosis uh, that this work um, always pulls him towards. And he's keeping that a secret from his wife. So I think it's slightly more clear in that character development sense. But yeah, I agree. Most of the stuff that was excised isn't necessary. This is one of the most like haunting openings to a serial killer ever or a serial killer film because it just opens with a POV shot of the killer looking at a woman asleep in her bed. And as she wakes up, she makes eye contact with us, the viewer, and it's incredibly menacing. And, you know, then it cuts and then it cuts to uh, Jack Crawford and Will on the beach. Um, but this, you know, immediately, at least in my mind, connects it to the 1960 film uh, Peeping Tom because they both share, you know, the themes of voyeurism and what do we get from looking at serial killers in movies and, and that kind of thing. And so that immediate image of a, you know, looking through the eyes of a serial killer at the face of a victim, I just think is an, inc- an incredibly haunting way to begin this film and really sort of sets the stage for us being disturbed by everything that happens. Well, and it's mirrored later on when um, when Graham visits the same house and you see the same shot of moving up the stairs and you see that little penguin toy on, uh, on the staircase and it's basically almost the entire scene is almost the exact same, uh, except this time it's the uh, investigator. Yeah, it's amazing. He does that in broad daylight, and yet it still fills you with this. You know, it's it's the emptiness of the house, the fact that there aren't any people there, and yet there's the arterial spray all over the place. So, right. uh, I mean, I know that we've seen plenty of crime scenes in movies at this point, you know, thousands of them. Right. Um, not and not that it was a new thing in '86, but the way he shot it in that super modern like white slate colored house that's really clean and the 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 biggest damage to it is that there's these gigantic pools of blood all over the place which suggests this incredible spasm of of violence and um the way bill peterson calmly narrates what happened in terms of you know the knife was pressed against his throat even as he was bleeding he fought back and he shot her in her stomach the bullet entered and paralyzed her you know below the the navel or something it's it's so clinical that we're seeing this uh, remove from the violence that had happened just whatever a week or so earlier and you know we never do see dollar high doing any of this it's always described to us right through the profiler and yet 
when we finally meet Dollarhide, I don't think we ever doubt that he's capable of such cruel, you know, brutal inhumanity. Well, and he isn't even introduced until literally an hour into the movie. Oh, I love that. That is such a hardcore thing to do, man, you know? And one of the things that I, I love about that investigating scene, which is one of the most harrowing, like, crime scene investigation moments in movies, is how few cuts there are. Uh, like, it just forces us to watch Will's face react or not react to the horror that he's witnessing as he's described it to us. And then there's very long panning shots of the blood as we're reflecting on what he said. And this is in real contrast to um, other serial killer movies, especially Adaptation of Red Dragon, which came, you know, in the early 2000s, where the same scene they use, like, lots of intercutting flashbacks and, and quick editing. And it is much, much less effective than this very kind of stark, slow-paced uh, sequence. You have to buy that Bill Peterson not just has this job, but has this intuition about the job. Because it's, it, the camera is perched on his shoulder and on his face for so much of the film that you're seeing the world through his eyes. And so it's not just his his uh, demonstration of, of what's going on through analyzing uh, data points and stuff like that. He's got to get into the personality. And you got to believe his canniness. The reason why they keep asking him to do it is because he assumes the guise of a serial killer. And it really relies on Billy Peterson letting you into the thought process. So, you know, he's as much a conduit to the world you know, because they're not showing you Dollar High doing it. They're talking about, you know, Bill Peterson seeing and conjuring what would he do? Get up into that tree, see the Mars uh, uh, candy bar wrapper. It was in the hands of a lesser actor. You probably would have trouble getting into it. It was like believing that he was smart enough and or crafty enough and or demented enough on his own to conjure the serial killer experience. But but Peterson sells it by being able to do that so damn well. I was actually surprised by the uh, the color of the wrapper because it's a white, uh, um, a yellow wrap or wrapper. And here they've always been uh, black. Is that normal in America? The Mars bars are yellow? They're they're black. Uh, maybe, you know, 30, 35 years ago, they, they were a different color, but uh, mm. they are black now at least. Okay. Maybe it was some copyright issue. They didn't, they didn't want their brand associated with being <laughs> by nude serial yeah. killers. Yeah, you know what you were saying, Bill. We're we're definitely given an insight into uh, Will Graham's intuition. Like later in that sequence, when the, his clue to get a fingerprint of of the tooth fairy is just the talcum powder that he would have had to remove a latex glove from his hand and then touch one of the the bodies. And ju just from that clue, that leads him to a line of reasoning of getting a fingerprint off of a cornea. And so there's these little, like, bits of, like, breadcrumb information that Will, and only Will, is able to kind of suss out. And that that's worth him, you know, leaving his family and putting them at great risk to, you know, discover the serial killer. Another, like, fascinating character that we meet later is uh, Freddie Lowndes, played by the great Stephen Lang. And I, I think he's as as great as Philip Seymour Hoffman is in, in Red Dragon, another in the kind of all-star cast of that, that movie. Lang just embodies this, like, scummy, paparazzi piece of shit so perfectly. <laughs> when he gets, like, a shoulder thrown into a car window, it's so easy to celebrate <laughs> that victory. Like, yeah. Get that son of a bitch. But I think that works well for the movie because then when his lips are torn off by Dollar Hyde's teeth and he's set on fire in a wheelchair, we kind of feel like bad for having such sadistic thoughts about him. Like, oh, like, are we guilty of this violence? Are we or will complicit in what happens to 
Freddie Lowndes later in the movie. Yeah, Stephen Lang is such a weird actor in a lot of ways. I mean, between Lang and Tom Noonan, who were both New York theater guys, Bill Peterson came out of that Chicago Steppenwolf stage thing. He was like a god up there in the 80s. Um, one of the, the, him and Malkovich and Gary Sinise and, and I think Joan Allen was there too. Yeah, and, and Laurie Metcalf. I mean, it, it was a huge feeder system for these people who are just incredible performers. Uh, and, you know, man is a Chicago guy, so he would always go with Chicago people like Dennis Farina too, obviously. But yeah, Lang and Tommy Noonan coming out of downtown in New York was like an interesting bit of, of fusion. Lang in the 80s, I think, played a lot of weird roles roles like that considering i think we look at lang now as a bit of an old coot after the um avatar movie and that one um nighttime blind slasher movie he did a couple of years back but he essayed a lot of wackadoos back in the day he was the bad guy in that jimmy woods movie the hard way with with michael j fox oh i did see that i yeah. did not remember that yeah he played it was another looney tunes guy you know he's just this unhinged deranged guy and and uh, it's funny because he's he's got this like mop of curly hair. Now he just wears the brush cut. He really looks like a, 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 a an ill-tempered old man from down the block. But he was lithe with that suit and and the floppy hair. He almost looks a little bit like Brad Dourif, but he's a little more caffeinated than Brad right. Dourif. I could have seen the two of them maybe going in for the last line read for that role. And Stephen Lang nailed it over Brad Dourif. They might have they might have actually been in contest uh, contest for the same roles back at that time. Yeah, that's such a bizarre thought because yeah, I definitely agree and you know imagining brad duraf as the heavy in avatar or vfw is kind of laughable now <laughs> uh, but but yeah I, I just think that that speaks to the the breadth of Stephen lang's abilities as an actor that's that is part of what i love about the movie is that it it really kind of warps your perception of, of these characters i think pretty effectively because you know, even after that that encounter, we've seen Will's ability. But just on the street, you know, he says he won't stop, and Jack Crawford says, "Oh, you do have an insight in him," and he says, "Not enough." And so that's when he goes to see uh, Lecter, yeah. which is you know forms the kind of tentpole or, or centerpiece of this movie. Yeah, had we ever seen Brian Cox before that? Because I can't recall. I know he was working, but I have not yeah. seen a, a Brian Cox uh, appearance earlier than this personally. Yeah, neither have I. I don't think so. I mean, that's a hell of an introduction, though. He comes out and, and that he was so fully formed. And I'm assuming he must have been in his early 40s or something. Maybe his late 30s. I'm, he, can't have, he can't have been that old. But... Yeah, I think he was like 43 or something. Yeah, this is yeah. only his uh, third credit, actually. Wow. See, that's a big He's shot. mostly a stage guy. And he leaves an indelible, you know, somehow the filmmakers, the production team knew that this was going to be an important part. So, I mean, a lot of guys played serial killers in the 80s, but... Considering they pulled an unknown to do this, that's it's almost like George Lucas grabbing Ian McDermott to play the Emperor. Like, let's get a guy no one's seen before who can do the job. And, you know, it's good casting. I assume that they were, you know, plucking these guys out of the UK, not for no reason. Well, they actually got Brian Cox uh, because Brian Dennehy recommended him. They wanted Dennehy originally? Was that yes, what it was? I think so. That wouldn't have worked. That wouldn't have worked at all. Well, I think it was because he was in Jericho Mile as well. Brian Denny, he could do a lot of things, but I think playing a sort of master chess player, uh, maybe, you know, he, he at that point he was playing a lot of like destitute, drunk ex-cops in, in dire, <laughs> dire straits. And I'm not saying the guy can't. He played Hickey in, in the Iceman Comet, so he could do a lot of things. I, I think in this case, I'll defer to his, uh, his ability to, you know, recommend Brian Cox. That sounds like a better choice to me. Yeah, there are so many like what ifs of of movies um especially when when we're talking about the the Hannibal Lecter role because you know obviously the most famous portrayal is Anthony Hopkins but 
how can we, in retrospect, put ourselves in the, in the brains of these people casting this movie when, you know, in 30 years it'd be such an iconic role? Anyway, I, I love that the first line out of this, you know, master chess player, serial killer's mouth is that you're where that's the same atrocious aftershave you wore in court three years ago. He's so perceptive that the smell of Will Graham is what makes him recognize, you know, this guy who caught him. But th- and three years ago, and it's it's a way to show off his intelligence and his absolute disdain for for Graham. I think it's also supposed to make Brian Cox seem like Wolverine. You know, he's supposed to be an other, where his his senses and his perception. Every single time Bill Peterson asks him a question, he always says, "But you know that already, don't you?" As if Lecter's just playing games, trying to draw something out of Will Graham the entire time. What is that? Uh, I don't know. Do you guys know what that thing is that he's doing uh, to the telephone that allows him to dial outside <laughs> of the prison? I've always wondered about that. I mean, that's that's some rotary phone shit, isn't it, uh, yeah. John? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I am not well versed enough in the the technology of rotary phones to know if that's uh, entirely bullshit or not. It's shot well enough and written well enough that we assume Hannibal Lecter knows what he's doing. Right. And, and it's a legitimate way of communicating or of hacking into a rotary telephone but uh, i am not technically uh, knowledgeable enough but matt what it, it looks like he, he there are two screws right that their leads bolted into and it looks like he uses the piece of the gum the foil wrapper to maybe bypass the two leads to almost like create a circuit that's yeah, the, i thought he was cutting out people that might be listening in on the uh, initial conversation with his lawyer or something like that where he was trying to get an outside line some way trying to manipulate the phone uh, or something like that but again i know nothing about technology or rotary phones but uh, it, it it's shot in a way where it looks like oh yeah of course he can do that and this must be something smart the suspension of disbelief in terms of doing something like that today would clearly not work because what you say is correct. The surveillance state would be able to know every single thing he said and did. There'd be no way for him to sneak around and skunk his the, the watchers, the overseers. But if you put it you know, you put it back in the old days where you have a telephone that's just clunky pieces. Maybe you, it makes it a little easier to believe that. What I love about that little sequence, um, in the exchange between the guard and Lecter, is that the guard, like, you know, he's like 6'6", six, six, you know, 280 pounds, all muscle. The guard is clearly terrified of Lecter. Like, you know, you know, <laughs> yes. turn around or I'll shoot you in the face. And he just wants to get out of that cell as soon as possible. The staff is so scared of Lecter that they're willing to use a hands-off approach and step away from him if it just, just just as long as I don't have to be in the same room with this crazy motherfucker, he can do what he wants. Brian Cox projects this aura of calculated villainy that we're able to believe that. Like when he asks Will, like, you know, if you think, if you can appeal to my, you know, vanity, if how did you catch me? Are you smarter than me? And Will says, I know I'm not smarter than you. Why? You had certain disadvantages. You're insane. Like, I, I just love, <laughs> I just love that, that exchange. And the fact right. that like, Will is the only person who's able to engage even a semblance of a like, kind of a one-on-one conversation with Lecter, at least at this point in the movie. Do they even mention in this movie that he's a cannibal? Uh, no, I think they just talk about him killing... That's a co-ed killer, right? Co-ed killer. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the giveaway was that he was in the... He says he was in the office and he saw something that... And, you know, he, he's, it, it clicked in his brain that, oh, you're the guy. And it, just as soon as he did, he was stabbed or... or he was gutted, something like that. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that. Like, did they even mention the cannibal thing? Because I think 
they probably did in Red Dragon, but by that point, everybody knew the character already. But Red Dragon starts off with a dinner scene where they're right. people where are being fed, eating someone. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, because if if I told you, you wouldn't want to eat it anymore, or something like that. That's similar to that scene on the plane from uh, Hannibal, where he's feeding some kid a piece of brain matter. I think it is right, or thy- thyroid or something. Well, I, maybe in this case they figure that. Well, why put a hat on a hat? Because you already right. ha- you have a, a great serial killer. You know, Tom Noonan is doing this incredible work. He's doing this visceral, muscular, cerebral performance of of showing you rather than telling you. Honestly, Dollar High doesn't say anything, except a couple of um, weird screeds and stuff like that. So right. to add to add on top of that, the other killer in the movie, and you make him a kidney eater, might have right. seemed like well, maybe we could just let's let's not double down just yet. Yeah, I think yeah, it definitely has a less is more approach to Lecter because it's such even the facility that he's held in is so stark and blank and white as far afield from the gothic dungeon that Lecter is held in inside the <laughs> lambs as you can get uh, it's actually the high museum of art in atlanta but yet so we just sort of have to put the puzzle pieces together of who Lecter is and his and his relationship with will on our own like and there's little details that let us know that he's a psychopath like he he calls the tooth fairy pilgrim yeah for some reason because he's crazy but i i think we get just as much of lecter as we need in this movie i actually i mean i really love that location of the the prison i think it looks fantastic i like i love the shot of um uh graham running out of the prison where you just see the the side shot and you keep seeing him uh run farther down and then Zigzagging, yeah, yeah, very. So it it feels like you're in a dream where you're running and going nowhere. Well, it also makes him look like he's in the Guggenheim Art Museum too. I mean, I've never seen him. (laughs) It's like a Frank Gehry designed prison for God's sake. I've always wondered about this as well, um, but I've never actually looked it up. But in that conversation between uh, Lecter and Graham, at one point when uh, they're talking about you know God kills people all the time. he mentions a couple of things like a church roof uh, falling on a number of people, killing like 34 people in Texas. And I always wondered whether that actually happened or whether that's just a line from maybe the book or the script. But I've always wondered, like, are those real things that did happen or did they make that up? I think that they did something like it happened. It's got the shine of truth to it. But I think it's it's a guy like hearing a smart ass who's um, completely cold and clinical and brutal and inhumane just sort of write off people's deaths by pulling anecdotes out of his ass. Like right. saying, you know, I mean, yeah, there, there are tornadoes that eat up churches in Oklahoma and Texas and things like that. So those things happen. But specifically, I don't think he's referring to a, a, an actual isolated incident so much as the type of thing that happens. When he's referring to God killing people, it says it, it must feel good to God. God did it all the time. God's terrific. <laughs> Why does it feel good, Dr. Lecter? Uh, it feels good, Will, because God has power. And if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. He sells that line so well. Yeah. And it's, it's writing. That's the thing. All this shit is writing. And then until someone gets it, it just doesn't sound like writing anymore. It sounds like someone's thoughts. That's what's brilliant about it. Well, there are a couple of cool lines in this movie for sure. Like, uh, I love when he looks at the, uh, when he's at the airport and he looks at the window and Graham just goes, it's just you and me now, sport. <laughs> I've always loved that line. So great. 
You know what that reminds me of, Matt? It reminds me of um, Tom Sizemore calling everybody slick in right. heat. Antiquated, you know, slang, the the pal thing that people, if you're trying to ironically right. say, hey, it's just you and me, slick. It's like, you, hey, shithead. Right. <laughs> you're, you're an asshole. There's actually a lot of things revealed about Will's character in reflection. So we, we get that moment where he calls him sport, but there's also that scene where he's uh, in a hotel room with his wife and he's shirtless and we see him, his reflection in the window. And that's the, kind of the first time we get a glimpse of the scar that Lecter left on him. So, you know, we're presented with this character who's also affected by his own reflection because every time he sees himself, he sees the damage that his career has done to himself and his family. Yeah, Billy Peterson gives you the whole uh, wounded thing pretty well. Uh, Almost like he can't help himself from getting into it again, but he's also quite aware of what it's like to almost bleed out on the ground. Talk about the great direction that Michael Mann did. It was there with Brian Cox. The, the great direction was there with the guard, who's who's giving Brian Cox the space to sell, you know, that this is a dangerous man. People around him are just giving you the, the hint. Do not go near this guy. And Peterson was playing, I'm sure, the idea that, you know, you don't want to get back in there. You've got, you've got pain in your side that never goes away because there's scar tissue all up and down your abdomen wall. And yet you're overwhelming that with this logic and this drive to find dollar hide yourself. That's you know, I'm sure it's a, it was a choice that everybody engaged in. And I like the little moments of uh, discovery, like for example, when he realizes that the guy took his gloves off, or when he finally works out, like oh, he's selecting them. It's tied to the videotapes, for example. Like the, those little moments where I think that's when he really uh, sells the idea that oh, he's a great investigator. Yeah, that's detective work, though, right, Matt? Like, to, to, to how do you make exciting somebody sitting at a table shuffling through a manila folder of pictures? Right. You have to somehow direct that into some kind of dynamism of, of hearing a guy's thought process. It's like Sherlock Holmes doesn't always jump off the page into a movie unless you kind of make it. It's really dependent on the actor. And, and yeah, they, they get that done here. You're right. And I think the investigating scenes actually are another uh, tentpole of this film. Um, because when they find the toilet paper notes in Lecter's cell from the Tooth Fairy, you know, that fan letter, right. it sets off this sort of avalanche of, like, CSI tropes before CSI right. of, you know, looking at shit through a microscope, hair examination, um, you know, fingerprint analysis, document analysis. But it's done with such desperation because they have to get it back in Lecter's cell without Lecter knowing they found it. So it's at such an accelerated pace that it's almost like a chase scene because you're on this ticking clock. Man who loves sequences of experts doing the thing they're expert at. Yeah. You know, if you want an example of that, Thief is, you know, sort of his yeah. doctoral thesis on, on, on doing that. But there's they're looking for fingerprints and like a blue laser gets turned on and you hear like a boom sound for yeah i don't know is, is that how they find fingerprints now with laser beams and, you know the, if, if you have paper? if someone says get me a fucking blue laser they're gonna get a, <laughs> i want that in my movie put a blue laser yeah. in every film and then of course it goes from that like the cool blue to the next like two seconds later in this totally red room for document examination and that this actor who has one scene to make an impression he's looking through a microscope and says you're sly but so am I. Right. <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm, I'm thrilled as you're examining the, the, the type of felt in this toilet paper. Uh, oh, is that three T's? Three T's for Tatler. For Tatler. 
<laughs> I love that scene though when uh, and there's a couple of cool cameos in there as well when they're all sitting around the table and they're discussing uh different ways of uh in which they've investigated this piece of toilet paper and and how they're all coming up with nothing and you have people like uh Bulldog from Frasier and Chris Elliott in there and, yeah. and it's just it's such a great scene. I really like it. It does feel like a chase scene. Uh, yeah, and not only that, but it's it's a chase scene. It's also kind of ad hoc. They're putting it together as they go along, just acting right. on instinct. They're running from room to room. The cool thing is like uh who's that guy? The code guy is the it was the father from my so-called life. He was Claire Danes's dad. And, like, he's really good at his job. You know, like you said, these people are good at their job, but they're also excited. And everyone's super – there's no incompetent police in this movie. I mean, I kind of love that, that everyone comes and forms this supergroup, and no one's handicapping it. So just from your your beat cops up until these these highly trained FBI examiners are all really good at what they do, and they have this passion for it. Right, and – there's one moment uh, right before Graham goes into this uh, the the first house that he examines uh, the Leeds house where uh, the local cop uh, says you know I've been told you like to work alone but uh, you know and he tries to maybe see if he can come inside and show him around and Graham is just like nah I'm not having that <laughs> and the disappointment on this guy's face. As Will Graham leaves the car, it's wonderful. I, my favorite, like the Billy Peterson thing, is I think twice in the movie, as he's stumbling upon this epiphany, he says, uh, you took your glove off, didn't you, you son of a bitch? Right. And then Did I think, you want them to see you? <laughs> I think he, when he's up in the tree, right, doesn't he say something like, you looked at him, you son of a bitch? Right. I, I feel like that, that I love this. You this... waited all goddamn day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's just he he sells those moments, man. He's really angry in those scenes. I think that's very uh, funny. Like, or when he says, "You've seen these films, haven't you, my man?" And one last thing that I love about that whole sequence is that we're given a glimpse into the mind of the Tooth Fairy before we meet him, because we have the text of the note, and so that sort of internal monologue is the kind of thing that they they do not deserve to know what I am becoming. Like That, that whole stuff is a sort of thing that Dollarhide would want to tell his audience, but because he's such a fan of Lecter, we get that insight into his psychology without him having to turn to camera to tell us. Uh, and so it's a wonderful device to make us terrified of Dollarhide. You know, as soon as we see Tom Noonan in those weird glasses in that, in that like, you know, cold, blue-lit facility, we, oh, this is the killer. And we're able to kind of project that horror from the note uh, onto this, you know, tall, gangly madman. Yeah, right. the, to- the toilet paper note is showing and not ta- – I mean, it, as much as it is writing on a page, it is showing the writing. It's showing the handwriting. It's, you're reading the words and you're coming up with a voice in your head. It's it's wonderful filmmaking technique. I have to say that uh, when I rewatched Red Dragon, I thought like, oh, that fake tea thing is kind of weird. But then I have to say when I rewatched Manhunter, it was in there as well. And I never really remembered that he had like a set of fake teeth for no reason. Yeah, because Brett Ratner, Brett Ratner tells he does right. not show. Yeah. yeah, it's way more explicit uh, Red Dragon. Well, but wait, so so uh, Dollarhide just has bare gums, like he had all his teeth pulled. I know they don't explain it, but yes, that that, that, I don't it, know. that it's a weird detail, Matt, because I because though though they're not like they almost look like some diseased cadavers dentures, you know, like they're well, yellow. Yeah, I think he has his own teeth, but then he I, I think of it as like maybe those are uh, his, his murder teeth? Else's teeth. Yeah, I don't know. 
Maybe it, it well, might it might have been um, like a cast of his teeth that he because it, it seems like he has a, a hair lip and and corrective right. surgery on the hair lip so it might have been a casting of his teeth made before he had corrective surgery uh, that 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 was sort of my projection onto what is happening okay uh, you know I, I didn't think about that yeah it's it's weird right the cleft palate thing I don't think they ever mention it they just it's a makeup effect where he's got that goop on its top lip right yeah it's strange because if you think of when this movie when the book was written when the movie was made and today like the technique of, of surgical repair of the, the cleft palate is so much further along that I don't think it leaves you with quite the deformation that the character has and if that's what was driving a lot of his mania and his psychoses was this sort of um, scarred deformity uh, we don't have that in society as much because I don't think we really recognize that many people with the, with the cleft left palette because it's a lot less severe than it used to be and yeah maybe the tooth thing is something that a 1986 viewer would say, oh yeah, that's what happens when you have a cleft palate. If, if you get that surgery for a hair lip, you know, they'd yank all your teeth out and just give you a new set of teeth uh, and a denture. But that's hard for us to say. Now, why did they call him the tooth fairy? Did they ever explain that? I think it's because of the biting. Um, every, every cadaver had a bite on them. Um, which they do mention in a glancing thing, but well, they don't. They did, they don't, yeah, they, they did don't, mention they have a tooth print at some point, and in the, the toilet paper thing, there was a print of his teeth as well. I think. Yeah, that's the that's him signing his work. I think was the bite, which you know you'd think maybe you want to leave that to the end. Don't give that away up front because that's probably the one thing they can use to catch you. Which is in this case, I think one of the things that they did use to. But that's him. I think signing his work. But the, yes, the nice thing is they don't tell you exactly. It's because they mentioned that there were bites on the women, uh, but they don't oh, say okay. we're, we're calling him the tooth fairy because he bites his women. The, the, the cop with that floppy hair in Atlanta never puts that together in the, um, you know, in, in the sort of muster room. Yeah, so uh, let's move on to one of the strangest, but also most beautiful scenes in this movie is when um, Dollarhide uh, meets this blind woman, uh, Reba and, manages to get her <laughs> to come home with him and he takes her to a veterinary hospital and she a blind woman is able to sort of commune with this sedated tiger and she's you know she puts her hands on the tiger and she's sort of like absorbed in the power and the grace of this majestic animal and she puts her head to its chest and he feels its barely subdued power in its heartbeat and she cries tears into it and it's this incredibly beautiful moment that lets you connect with the serial killer in a way that you know i didn't think was possible because we're we we see the empathy in joan allen that joan allen has for dollarhide and we're able to sort of see him as a character rather than just this cartoon villain well that's what i like especially towards the end when um when he gets upset with her and he says you know francis is gone forever or something like that right <laughs> yes where it, it does feel like she awakened like maybe his old self from before he became a psychopath and then uh once that relationship doesn't go anywhere he he's just even crazier than before probably yeah one of the things that is the the modern uh, forensic handbook of, of psych psychiatry and psychology about serial killers now as we have had so much pop fiction about them, is that apparently somebody in Dollar High's position, uh, you know, the real life Dollar Hides and the ones we've seen in pop art, are supposed to not have uh, any empathy. You know, one of the the going theories is that they don't recognize terror, fear, sadness, unhappiness on people's faces. The reason why they're able to captive take people cap captive and then torture them and kill them. And, and assault them is because they don't read terror anymore. It's just an object that you're perpetrating. 
take that take that as you will, but it's like you're, you're getting an impression here. The psychology of Dollarhide is that he clearly has feelings. He clearly is working on fighting something. Um, he's trying to tamp down an urge, and he also knows how to make someone happy. And he, he, like the, his ecstasy, John, like you're saying, in the vet office, as he's he sort of collapses against the wall, like he's been injected with heroin. Right. You know, he's overcome by how transcendent it is. It's like he's he's drinking it almost, or or insufflating it. It's it's it is a pretty wild scene. And then he later mirrors that touch when he's in bed with Joan Allen, where he puts his head on her chest and then puts her hand on his mouth while she's sleeping. And so he's desperate for human connection. And so in some ways, he's the total opposite. I have to say, I always read the hand over the mouth thing. I always felt like that may be some indication that he was uh, molested at some point because it it feels like such a weird thing. And then when he makes that face he makes that really sad face when he puts the the hand over his own mouth i always thought like maybe that's some sort of a trauma for him yeah that's actually i think you're absolutely right about that i I mean the the first the set the second movie the remake really underlines that where they have the the voiceover uh of ellen burston as the sort of withering grandma who's threatening to cut his penis off right they don't have to do any of that shit because yeah he, he let tommy noonan just sob into his own hand and you you get you know thirty five years of trauma on the screen just as as an acting exercise. Now speaking of which, in in Red Dragon, right? You see at one point you see a dead body. Who do you think that is? Because obviously it wasn't Dollarhide and it wasn't Reba. He just has a dead body laying around. No, that like, that was Fran- what's going that was on Fr- with that. It was Francis. R- what? Yeah, no, no, no yeah. it wasn't. Because then later on they brought in him. Red Dragon. Yeah, it's it's the guy that he sees with uh, Joan uh, with Reba's oh, character. Oh, is that who that was? Yes, yeah, yes. I, I was wondering about that. He shoots him and he shoots the dead body in the face, and so she she hears the thud and 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 the the sound of a tissue discharge from a shotgun, and she assumes it's him. But he was just blowing the guy's dead guy's face off and then running out of the shadows. That's what his deal was. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's definitely an improvement Michael Mann makes on the book is that it it really bends over backwards to give you that horror movie cliche of the monster coming right. back when you think it's dead. And right. it just works so much better in, in this movie. It, the third act ends with the climax. Let me ask you guys, though, because let's just say we are a blind woman, all right? Even one as attractive as Joan Allen, who works with harmful chemicals all day and maybe her br- D- Don't you think there's enough red flags with how bulky and and weird he sounds and how tentative and strange dollar height is that maybe you wouldn't bone down with him to begin with like he's yeah you're already having you already have a sense taken away you can't see the guy so you have to be pretty trusting of your other senses and he's not he's still not filling you with a lot of confidence even with what he says and how mumbly and evasive the guy is maybe maybe you don't want to take your pants off and jump into the sack with this guy (laughs) i want you to take a ride with me because i want you to (laughs) get in my murder van (laughs) yeah so maybe after like five or six dates but no you're not not gonna go in that guy's house on the first date (laughs) definitely not 
Hey, I'm all for 80s sexual liberation of women, Mr. Goodbar and all that. I just think you might want to chill out, chill out a little bit when it comes to dollar hide. And maybe ask one of the girls in the, uh, in the office, hey, what do you guys think about dollar hide? You know? Oh, that guy's a freak. He's definitely killing people back home and tanning them, turning their skin into leather. Well, I mean, they do. I mean, I remember when, uh, when the FBI shows up to the place and they go, oh, yeah, that's Mr. D. Like, they, it sounds like they all have a very different view of him uh, than we do as an audience. Yeah, but we, we've seen far less of him and we're already creeped out immensely but like the the gesticulation when he comes up with those blue lenses and he like smooths his hair down and looks up into the sky i love it all don't get me wrong i will take whatever tom noonan wants to give us but it's like the one thing he's not giving us is safe avuncular figure comfortable male person who you want to knock back a beer with he's the kind of guy you want to run away from and burn a gasoline trail behind you so he can't follow you. I love uh, how disinterested that uh, young woman is when she comes up to him to say there's something wrong with uh, one of the batches of film or something. And she's clearly like some high school intern or something. <laughs> but she's just like, this, she's like chewing gum and she's like, there's something wrong with this or something. And it's. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I've ever heard you do an American accent before. It's yeah. pretty, it's pretty oh. good. <laughs> Can you guys indulge me for a moment? The character of Francis Dalhide is obsessed with the William Blake painting, The Great Red Dragon, and the woman clothed in the rays of the sun, which is all this interpretation of the book of Revelation. William Blake's probably most famous poem is Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Yes. And there are so many images in the poem that are then echoed in the film. So, you know, obviously Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Could they frame uh, they fearful symmetry? Uh, Dollar Hyde, you know, as we t- talked before, puts Reba's hand over his own facial scar, and that's the kind of aspect of himself that is sort of the focus of his psychopathy. And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart and what when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand, what dread feet is another hand imagery and also Reba focusing on the uh, the heartbeat of the of the tiger when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears again uh, echo of Reba crying into the tiger 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 burning bright in what force of the night what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry and of course dollar hide is obsessed with mirrors and eye imagery uh, and so I just thought that was an interesting sort of exploration into the poetry of William Blake as well as that painting and who says my English literature degree is useless. That was well done, John. I appreciate that. You know, and and I'm sure everything you said was in the it, probably in the text. I'm sure Thomas Harris, as as a a great modern day pulp writer who's fueled so many of our uh, movies and nightmare uh, uh, engines, all that was intentional. I, I and then Michael Mann picking it up and making sure that he and uh, Dante Spinotti are able to make it part of the film is just another level of gamesmanship on top of that. I agree, but I, I th- uh, thank you. Uh, I think that brings us to the climax of the film, the glorious uh, Inagata Davida of it all. Um, so. It's in total contrast to the musical score and the, you know, 80s cocaine-fueled ballads of of the rest of the the film. But it's totally perfect in how it frames this sort of insane, glass-shattered violence of the film's climax. Well, they might have been looking for a song that's really long as well, because the original version is something like 18 minutes. But I think they only used uh, the shorter version. Uh, but actually, they used it because uh, Michael Mann knew a guy who I think killed something like 
three people or something like that. And he had this whole fantasy of having a relationship with a woman and that was supposed to be uh, their song. Uh, but it was all in his head. Like he was just a crazy guy going around killing people. And uh, he talked to that guy in prison and that's where the song came from. You creepy. Ooh. Yeah. Well, you know what it reminds me of is uh, The End from Apocalypse Now. The right. Way it, it be- it's diegetic music that becomes not diegetic, which, mm. you know, not that that's the only movie that's ever done that, but it starts off with an actual thing that he's playing. It becomes the score of the film oh, as, right. as they're creeping closer to the house, and then it gets turned off inside the house, you know, as if they, they cut the record player on it. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, pure filmmaking. It, it is a creepy, moody song. Now it is, I guess, because it's scored uh, Dollar Hyde's shotgun rampage against the FBI. But Michael Mann who is no stranger to uh, choreographing scenes to music. Did he edit around it? Uh, Because it seems that it certainly crescendos and it it lulls in certain moments. It's like he he paced the scene, I think, to to the song for sure, to sell it, the same way uh, Coppola did with the end in Apocalypse Now. Uh, Yeah, he probably did. I mean, and again, you know, when you have a song that's that long, uh, and especially with the structure it has where, you know, it starts off with some singing, but after that it's like six minutes of nothing but instrumental, uh, you know, you crash back into the, the actual chorus and it's a song again. It, it does lend itself uh, perfectly for something like this. I love the shot of him just jumping through the window and, you know. That's great, man. Right, so good. lined up with the music. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, it's triumphal. Yeah, and I, I love how, you know, so much broken glass adds to the scars of Will Graham. Like, it's so painful for us as an audience to watch him get cut again and again as he's trying to prevent more mass death. Uh, and so we see him, you know, show up scarred uh, later in the film, you know, uh, in, in in actually another cut scene, which, which is interesting. I don't know, it kind of interrupts the flow of the movie, but where he shows up to the family that would have been murdered. Um, and we just see him, his, his face is swollen and, you know, there's cuts all over his face and he has stitches. And it's it's another thing that he has to live with for the rest of his life. And he probably can never hear that song again for the rest of his life. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine listening to a classic rock station and Inagata DeVita comes on? Like in your kids in the car after that experience? Well, is that not right. the same? Um, I mean, for us as the viewer, that's what happened with Q Lazarus. Uh, I mean, not that I was really familiar <laughs> with with Keel Hazardous, but both both of those movies, it can't be an accident that a song was turned into something weird and twisted based on the machinations of a serial killer. So, I mean, the, the two movies have that in common, which, again, could that have been intentional? Probably. Both of the filmmakers, I'm sure, were well, my, Jonathan Demme was looking at what came beforehand, but... The, the goodbye horses thing really punctuates that scene. And I have heard goodbye horses at a fucking grocery store. What what <laughs> lunatic in their right mind is playing that, for God's sake? Maybe they were just playing radio or something. Yeah, but who's playing? No more radio play for goodbye horses. We're not doing that right. anymore. No? It's been retired? I, it's, it's, it is officially. You have to tuck your weenie into your, your thigh. If goodbye horses right. comes on, you have no choice but to dance in front of a mirror like Ted Levine. That, that's it. Uh, what was that South Park thing where um, it takes 27 years before you can joke about something really tragic? So maybe uh, <laughs> no one can play the song for 27 years in a few months. Oh, uh, yeah. Actually, we're, we're, we're there. It's at least... Yeah, so I'll give you that one. I'll, I'll, I'll abide by that rule. 
But let me ask you one more thing about this. Uh, I mean, if we're still talking about the finale here, again, having seen the Brett Ratner version and and how sh- I'm I'm sure there was more fidelity in that Ted Talley script to to the book, and and I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested more in the license that a director takes. And you're inside this very modernist house with um, st- strange uh, kitchen tables and aquatic blue tile and a, a right. huge a huge um, scrim poster. Of the- yeah, right. A poster of the moon landing, and it and it's it, black leather furniture. It's very much an '80s uh, house, right out of a Brian De Palma movie. And I, I guess, can I, you imagine Dollar Hyde shopping for that furniture? <laughs> <laughs> I want a leather couch, the biggest one you have. Preferably, you can wipe blood off of it. This you have this strange set piece set to uh, Iron Butterfly, and that that you know that he shoots out his lights over the house, and Jane, Joan Allen's walking around. She's terrified, and she's reaching, and he just sort of comes by and taps her, and is freaking her out and playing this game, and then it all just stops. Will Graham is on the ground after having had his ass handed to him by Dollar Hyde, pulls out the gun with the stopper bullets and shoots Dollar Hyde and it's over. In a way, the only thing I could say is a knock on the movie is that, granted, we don't get that killer is in the lake kind of thing. He's still alive, but it just stops. The movie just stops. There isn't like a big triumphal ending. It's just Will Graham picks up the revolver and puts down Dollar Hyde. And it seems very abrupt and not really telegraphed by anything. And maybe it's the jarring nature of the fact that it just stops as opposed to, you know, we weren't expecting some gigantic epiphany where Dollarhide gives a speech on his back on the ground as he's bleeding out. You know, the most you get is that uh, blood angel sort of pouring out of his back as his arm. He is literally transmogrified into a red dragon on the ground uh, because of the gunshot. But are you saying you didn't like the ending because of that? It's a little abrupt. It is It is weird with how much careful consideration and how much artifice went into every other detail to just have gunshot, blam, 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 and he's down. Well, he did kill a couple cops, though, before that. Yeah, which is why, and right, and he, he looked like he was about to get the better of, of Will Graham. He just throws him around that kitchen like he was right. a, piece, a piece of meat, you know? Well, I think... Uh, and this is not just uh, him, uh, but a lot of serial killers. I think people assume that these are really strong individuals and, and it's so well thought out and everything like that. But I think in a lot of cases, it's just literally sneaking up on people and killing them rather than overpowering them. So, yeah, he can kill people in their sleep, basically, but that doesn't mean he's as good with uh, live humans. Right, who are tra- trained trained in combat? Yeah, and, and, so and I think that's surprising. I love the lead up into that sequence because uh, you know, we see Will Graham loading his revolver with those extra special, extra right. deadly bullets, and you know Jack Crawford is saying, "You're not going to need those. You're not going to need those." And you know Will just looks at him because Will knows he's going to need them. Of course, he's going to need then, them. And we, as an audience, obviously know as well. Uh, you're not going to plant the seed of these extra awesome bullets an hour before in the movie and then not use them. But even the cops driving the cars, they crash because they've turned off their lights because they want to sneak up on Dollar Hide. So now like half of the cops are now injured or stumbling their way and they don't know where the house is. But it's only Will that knows where the house is. And so we're primed for randomness and chaos that only Will has sort of an insight to. I was kind of primed for him to at least be able to stop Dollar Hyde in that moment, even if he's, you know, sort of thrown about like a rag doll beforehand. Well, they kind of know where the house is. It's just that it's in the middle of a swamp or uh, some sort of a forest kind of area. So, yeah, especially when you don't have lights, it's going to be 
you know, kind of tough just driving up there. So, yeah. Well, Crawford is content to hang back in the swamp. He just wants to hide behind those marshy reeds. And he says, Jack, the SWAT team's coming. Hold back. Right. I mean, he doesn't say Jack. He says, Will, hold back. And he says, no, he's got a person in there. And so right. he will not stand by and, like, allow her to get chopped to pieces before the uh, brute squad gets there. So in a way, it's like, yeah, Jack Crawford's going to hang back. That takes him out of the occasion. How do you get this to be mano a mano? It, you know, you set it up that... Uh, Will, Will has to run through that window and take on Dollarhide ill-advisedly before he's got backup, and he just sort of barely gets over on him. What I do like about the ending is that it he's so still broken at the end when he gets back to his family at the beach, and we see echoes of an earlier scene where his son is, you know, afraid of him. So it's, it's not triumphant. And so I think that is part of what I like about the abruptness of the ending is that Will can't celebrate his victory because it's just something that he's desperately been able to get through and now he's going to have to deconstruct for another three or four years before he can be a normal person again and did until he say something yeah jack crawford oh, yeah. oh sure because i think he mentioned to his wife uh, that he was going to go for uh, go away for a while i think at the end of the movie didn't he say that it, 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 it matt though it brings up an interesting question because the wife what's her name uh, in the movie greased King Grace is the um, actor. Um, yeah. Yeah, she's Molly. Molly, Molly, yeah. She's kind of barely a character. You know, she really, all she is is an extension of, of Will and, and whatever it is that his de- the demands on him are or what his needs are or what he's being deprived of. You know, Kim Grease does the best she can. Michael Mann doesn't give her a whole lot. I mean, he really, other than maybe, what was it, Tuesday Weld in Thief, there aren't mm-hmm. a ton of female characters in Michael Mann movies up to that point. So it's not like she has her own motivations. Um, in a way, the kid gets more dialogue than she does when they're out searching yeah. They're sh- searching for coffee and Cocoa Pops at the grocery store. And yet, I, I did notice a, a mirror image with this movie in that, like, I see that Michael Mann's interest, and the same is true with Heat between Edie and um, Neil McCauley, right. that it's like the core of these movies, to and for Thief too, the core of these movies for him has to be that red-blooded hetero relationship between a man and a woman. That's the cornerstone of a lot of these characters. It's that's what grounds them. That's what life is based on. That's the that's where it's coming from. Even if he hasn't built out Molly Graham into a full character, Will Graham is is like moving away from that central axis point. She's where he returns to, or at least their relationship. You know, there's that blue tinged you know scene when they're in the mirrored bedroom in in Florida. Right. You know, that's to get, and there's a, there's a scene that looks just like that in Heat, too. You know, the, 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 the big glass house that Macaulay has, and, you know, he and Edie are sharing this passion. And even, even um, Pacino and what's her face uh, are having. Yes, they're having a sex scene too. To say, oh, there's something hot-blooded about this. This, these are libidinal people. These are this. This is the passion that drives them. The center of their life comes from this very real romance. The sex, you know, this sex thing between the two of them. And it's not as developed here, but I can see that Michael Mann is like really thinks that's important. Well, I think I heard him talk about that. Uh, I'm not sure when, but I think when he was uh, addressing uh, some of the criticisms of the romances in movies like Miami Vice or Black Hat, as far as people saying, well, where did that come from? You know, those characters don't really seem to really even know each other all that well. Uh, And I think he said something like that he likes the idea of that and uh, sort of the, um, the intensity of the situation drawing people together or something like that. 
that. Yeah, well, in Miami Vice, the movie, right, both Crockett and Tubbs have their kind of pieces on the side. There's Naomi, yes. no, Naomi Harris and what's her? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, the, the Chinese actress. Yeah, so. I can't remember yeah. her name. But so it's like they are almost like by default in these tethered partnerships. And yeah, Michael Mann, I think, just sees the world that way, that whatever these guys have to do in terms of the passion for their job, the mission, it always countermands the domestic obligation of maintaining honesty and transparency with a mate. And it's like he, he can't get away from that. I mean, that's the central thesis of Heat. It's just walk away, you know, walk away from whatever you got. Don't set up something you can't walk away from in five seconds. You know, and it, it doesn't, it, it, Macaulay still is able to do that at the end. But, you know, that's, it's supposed to take away a piece of his soul. That's the cost for like, De Niro's character. They put Molly and the kid in threat, in jeopardy in this movie for that same reason. It's like, they're going to threaten to take away the one thing you care about. That's your heart that they're cutting out. You may live, but you will shamble around like a a zombie if you don't have this family, this relationship, this sort of sex appeal with a member of the opposite sex. And I think that's part of what's interesting about the Hannibal TV show is that Brian Fuller, who was the creator and showrunner of that, consciously deconstructed that paradigm. But I think, unfortunately, uh, between the three successive screen portrayals of Will Graham, he becomes a progressively much more like beta male. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of that and then the implication of a homosexual relationship between Graham and Hannibal in the TV show is a very like uncomfortable like simultaneous track that the show brings that oh because he's no longer a heteronormative man he's also not masculine and so that's why uh, this portrayal as heteronormative as it is is much more uh, interesting and and compelling was the show good because I never watched it I'm really curious about that too yeah, it's it was it's magnificently shot. Um, the cast is amazing. Um, Hads Mickelson is absolutely brilliant. It has you know Lawrence Fishburne, Hugh Dancy as Will Graham. There was definitely writing problems because I think you know the show was never the the show never knew how many episodes were going to be in this season because it was one of those things that was always on the verge of cancellation and always fighting censors. So I think it never fully lived up to its potential as sumptuous as it was because it took place before red dragon right yeah and then the last season we did get a third portrayal of uh dollar hide it like it sort of climaxes with the red dragon story oh, it was the dude from lord yeah. of the rings right richard armitage yeah yeah richard armitage yeah and he's oh, he's okay. fantastic yeah so how many other characters have three actors do fantastic jobs uh in the role ray finds is good in Red Dragon, but I just think he definitely has less to work with uh, script-wise. I thought Ray Fiennes was given a lot of rope, and I think he kind of hanged himself with it. Some of the choices he made were weird, and again, I don't know if it's in the book, but one of the things they mention in Red Dragon is that he might have military training, and he was, like, stocky and and built and, you know, all hard edges and, like, the crew cut and all that stuff, and I think Ray Fiennes sort of went shithouse with it, and he's just, he blasted his physique. He moves like a Navy SEAL or, like, a LERP or something like that my impression of Dollarhide was so well fixed with Tom Noonan's strange, you know, lumpy, misshapen, gigantic goblin of a man, as yeah. opposed as opposed to this, you know, Navy SEAL that you're being given. This guy who you know can field strip a rifle and is just you know benching 250 pounds. It's it's almost too calculated. It's it's too masculine. It's too metal an image. And I don't know if, yeah. if Ray Fiennes was selling that to me as much. The, the vulnerability wasn't there nearly as much as Tommy Noonan's was. Yeah, yeah. Tom Noonan is like a gargoyle come to life. 
uh, while Ray Fiennes is a buzz cut come to life, basically. I mean, and Ray Fiennes is one of my favorite actors. It's just yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying he does. It's just he he gets in there. I just don't the choices he made. I you know. They didn't really excite me. I can't quite agree with them. Unless anybody has any thoughts, I think that uh, wraps up our Manhunter conversation. Gentlemen, plug your stuff. What have you got going on? Projects? Tell me how wonderful you are. Bill? Uh, I am um, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at William Scurry. I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time. I am cutting my video series, American Caesar Salad, right now. I'm three episodes into a, a run of 10 for the second season. My podcast, my regular podcast, which is not movie-based, uh, pop culture-based, called I Don't Get It. It's ongoing. Uh, you can find that on all the finer, the better podcast feeders, your, your Google's Play, your Stitchers, your... Apple Podcast, your uh, uh, Spotify, things like that. And uh, just recently, I'll plug a video that I helped to make, which is a... Uh, uh our mutual friend Kevin Marr uh, and another friend Nick Nadell put together a neat little video about um, sometimes the villains in movies are right. And he uses Dr. Zayas as a guy who is ironically correct at the end, even as the Earth gets blown up by a nuclear explosion. So that's on uh, Twitter. That's on YouTube. Um, that's on Facebook. You can find that all over the place. And I think that's what I'm yeah, that's what I'm plugging right now. It was a fantastic video. Uh... Thank you. 10 out of 10 for that one for all involved. <laughs> uh, Matthias, what do you got? Uh, compared to that, I got nothing really. Um, I, well, I, I am on Twitter all the time as well. So at uh, Matt R says. And other than that, not much going on right now. I am John Arminio, Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I would like to encourage everyone to, you know, reach out and be nice to people uh, in this extraordinarily stressful time. I know everybody's asking for charitable donations or, you know, to support local businesses. So do what you can. Uh, wear a mask if you could go outside. You can find all sundry Film 89 material at film89.co.uk, where coincidentally, the most recent post is an outstanding review or retrospective review of The Sons of the Lambs by the brilliant Steve Amos. You should go read that. Uh, many thanks to Sky for allowing me to host this great conversation with two of my favorite people in the universe. Everyone, enjoy Manhunter, uh, but more importantly, stay classy. Stay classy.